Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Dave Pratt and is somebody I'm looking forward to talking to for quite a while. He's the previous owner of Ranch Management Consultants in the Ranching for Profit School, and he's author of Healthy Land, Happy Families, and Profitable Businesses, as well as my favorite book, The Turnaround, A Rancher's Story. And he's joining me to discuss the topic of retirement, uh, specifically in this conversation of the retirement from farming or ranching. Uh, Dave, I'm really grateful for you joining me here today. So thanks so much and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for the invitation and yeah. the kind words about the book. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been one I've been, I've read it. I, there's not many books I'll read more than once. And this one I've read more than once. So that says that enough, <laughs> that says a lot about it in itself. But this topic of retirement has kind of come up to me a few times. It's interesting right now in, in my family, my dad is kind of in a retirement we're kind of discussing this idea of secession and retirement for him and, and how that works in me. So it's fresh on my mind and it just seems to be a popular topic everywhere with lots of people wondering how they do that. And so I uh, guess we'll just get started. And, and before this call, you had sent me a real cool framework. Well, actually, even before we get into the, the conversation in general, for anybody who hasn't you know, heard of you or, or read some of your books, maybe you could give an introduction to yourself and some of your history and, and yeah, kind of what's led you to doing what you do today. Sure. Thank you. I grew up in a small place in Northern California. I'm actually headed that I don't feel very retired this month. (laughs) Um, I'm headed to North Dakota in a couple of days to do some work. But uh, I'll tell people, first thing I'll tell them there is North Dakota, you think it gets cold here? I'm from (laughs) California. Sometimes we get frost. uh, But I go, my family goes back five generations on my mother's side Mm -hmm. in uh, California. I grew up uh, in on a small farm. It was it was nothing more than a hobby, but I wound up working for uh, a lot of local ranchers. This is on the Northern California. It wasn't right on the coast, but it was 20 miles inland. Mm. A lot of sheep ranchers back there at the time, and I worked for them. I worked for our local veterinarian, and uh, I trained to shear sheep and sheared for a while. I knew I wasn't smart enough to go to school. I was severely dyslexic and didn't learn to read till eighth grade. So my grades weren't very good. I assumed I wouldn't go to college. And so I, when I, after shearing sheep, I started fighting fire with the forest service. And after a while I thought maybe this is going to get hard by the time I'm 30 or something. So I should look at some other things and did go to a community college from there, went to a state college from there, went to the university of California uh, looked at the course catalog, saw you had to take uh, biochemistry if you wanted to major in animal science. And that sounded really hard. So I majored in range management where you didn't have to take biochemistry. Then I got a graduate degree and you do have to take biochemistry in a range graduate degree. And I was right. It is really hard. <laughs> and my focus was I wanted to work in extension um, as a farm advisor or uh, what most places would call a county agent. In California, the extension uh, folks just had a huge impact on me when I was young. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have that kind of impact on other people? So that's where I aimed. 
And I ultimately did that. In California, half your job is teaching and half is research when you're an extension. Okay. And my, when I was a student at the University of California, my professors talked about these two guys from Africa, Alan Savory and Stan Parsons. And they talked about them as though they were snake oil salesmen, you know, heretics. <laughs> and you ought not listen to these guys. But when somebody in a position of authority tells you you ought not do something and you're sort of a rebellious college student, that becomes exactly the thing you do want to do. Yeah. And I went to hear them. And it didn't sound like snake oil to me. It sounded like, well, it was one of the few things that was really making sense. At the university, they compartmentalized animal science from range management, from botany, from economics, from soils, and they were all different topics. And what Savory and Parsons were talking about, no, these are all the same topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about ecology and economics, econ and eco, it's the same thing. It's, it means home. One's, I think, Greek and the other one's Latin or something like that. Mm -hmm. And ology and anonomics means the study of. Both are the study of home. Well, one is more focused on looking at soil and plants and diversity and things like that. And the other one's looking at, at money. But it's just two sides of the same thing. And the only people I heard talking about that were Savory and Parsons. Mm -hmm. Their partnership didn't last very long. So Alan brought the grazing and ecology side of the partnership. Stan brought the animal science and economic side. And neither one brought very many people skills. <laughs> and so they had what Stan referred to as a Rhodesian conversation. And a Rhodesian conversation is a four-step process. It starts with a bold statement, followed by a flat denial with ensuing verbal abuse. And the fourth step is physical violence. <laughs> and I think they got to at least stage three of a Rhodesian conversation, and they went their separate ways. Sure. And Alan started the Center for Holistic Management. Stan started Ranch Management Consultants and the Ranching mm -hmm. for Profit School. I took both courses while I was with university. I was with extension at that point and I shifted my research career, my research program to focus on how do you apply these concepts to California mm. and the stuff that my partner and I were coming up with were, well, the answers we were coming up with were about 180 degrees opposite what the university had been recommending. And needless to say, it was somewhat controversial. And you know the old saying, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Mm -hmm. Well, that catches up with you. And after 14 years, that catches up with you, I found. Okay. <laughs> sure. And when Stan was, Stan had asked me to teach, uh, after taking the school, he asked me if I was interested in teaching with him. And I had started teaching schools. I'd take leave without pay and teach in Australia. And then after doing that, teach here. And when he was ready to step back from the company, uh, ready to, to have somebody else run it and ultimately sell it, he asked me if I was interested in taking it on. Mm -hmm. And I think I had just about worn out my welcome from the university at that point. So it was just the perfect timing for that mm -hmm. transition. And uh, his retirement was easy for me because he moved back home to Africa. <laughs> sure. And I'm Stan is a brilliant guy. But I think the temptation to look over my shoulder and second guess decisions that, that I was making, I think that would have been just an enormous temptation. I think he would have struggled mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. um, so his retirement went very well for me. Yeah. The, uh, so anyway, I ran the company. My wife and I ran the company for uh, 21 years. We owned it for a little over 19 of that. Mm. And uh, then 
I think it was four years ago, three or four years ago, sold it to one of my instructors, Dallas Mount. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's been taking it on a, a great trajectory and doing really exciting things with it. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's been fun to watch. Yeah. No, that's a perfect uh, kind of highlight overview. And I'm curious just because you piqued my interest and, and you're the perfect person, obviously having seen that in the experience, what, what was the, I'm just curious, it's not related to the topic. What was the pushback against Savory and, 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 uh, and Stan Parsons? Why was it so strong? And, and when you went to it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Why, why at that point do they still continue to fight it? What, why do the universities fight it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you should ask, well, Stan died, uh, mm. died from COVID, uh, mm-hmm. two and well, two and a half years ago. So that would be a better question put to Savory. Mm. My perspective is that many, many years ago when Savory and Parsons first came to the U.S., Savory made a comment at some meeting, something to the effect of that American rangelands are understocked and overgrazed and that you could double the stocking rate. Well, you can't double the stocking rate and you can't double the stocking rate until you've doubled the carrying capacity. You know, carrying capacity is supply. Stocking rate is demand. Yeah. Well, there was the potential to increase the carrying capacity. Um, And and part of what Savory was saying, I don't know that you could double it, but there was, because of low densities, animals being spread out, there was a lot of underutilized forage. There was overgrazing Mm -hmm. and overrest going on side by side. Yeah. And what he was saying is if you increase densities, this is way oversimplifying it, (laughs) but if you increase densities and use those plants that were being overrested, that you could double numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? That's a that as a blanket statement. On average, that may be true. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. I, I think maybe fifty percent increase, not doubling. Sure. But, but as a blanket statement, it just got people set the hair on the back of their neck on edge. They got them mm-hmm. on the edge of their seat and said, "I'm going to prove this guy wrong." And uh, essentially, it was savory against the universities at that point and people mm-hmm. built their careers on trying to prove him wrong <laughs> and they this this is a major rabbit trail yeah. um, but if you look at the work that's been done people would uh, take four paddocks paddock size might be a half acre they'd take or a quarter of an acre they'd take one sheep and they would rotate the sheep and you won't hear savory or parsons you'd never hear them talking about rotations because mm-hmm. you know, rotation means lockstep going from one to the next to the next going around in circles which yeah. is crazy mm-hmm. but uh the universities would do an eight pasture rotation well eight paddocks you may stop the overgrazing but you won't get anything else done yeah um and just stopping a bad influence i, I tell people just because something's not bad doesn't mean it's good you know, better than bad doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. Um, eight paddocks might be better than really, really bad, mm-hmm. but it's not good yet. It's not good yeah. for the animals. It's not good for the land. It's mm-hmm. simply stopping one negative influence from going on. Yeah. So anyway, it just uh, people built their careers after after that comment. That was low hanging mm-hmm. fruit to fight. Sure. Yeah. Um, huh. I should. I just actually released on Monday an episode with Alan Savory uh, for my hundredth episode, and uh, he talked. Not specifically on this, but just about a lot of the pushback and issues and things with some some stuff, which was, I guess it could have dug more into into that early days. But 
Uh, it is. It does seem like, and I see it still today, even like in my area, uh, Minnesota, talking around cover crops and different soil health practices. It's like people show great experiences and people want to prove it wrong. And so they'll put together some sort of a trial, which is almost designed to fail. It's not really practicing it the way that it should be or implementing the practices the way that, you know, a, you know an experienced regenerative farmer would advise them to do it. It's It's pulling little pieces out of context and applying them and then using that as the excuse for why it didn't work and why it'll never work. And that's just too bad. Just just along those lines, um, the day, this just about the time that, in fact, I remember calling my wife and uh, she was the one that says we, what had happened with the university. And Mm. there are actually a couple things that happened. And she said, uh, well, you need to quit. You know, it's it's just not a place where you can, you can be anymore. Mm. And she was right. But one of the things that happened, my colleague and I were doing, uh, had a, project called the sustainable ranching research and education project and we'd taken a watershed at one of the university field stations and turned it into a grazing cell we had about 30 paddocks there we had one herd uh we had changed the calving season a lot of people in california are in the foothills are fall calving so they're calving in october and november just when we have no feed at all and of course the mm-hmm. cow's nutritional requirements are as high as they'll ever get yeah and the capacity of the range to support those animals is as low as it will ever be. <laughs> so we had 30 paddocks. We eliminated the need for hay by changing the calving season. We reduced our supplement costs from something like $300 a year to $13 a year. Mm. Uh, to not make a profit doing that would be like falling out of a boat and not hitting water. And uh, most of the time when you do a research project at the university, they give you three years and then you have to renew it. Mm. We had to renew it every single year. Finally, uh, they would they withdrew permission for the project, and then the, they got a lot of pushback on that. Uh, we had a lot of fans in the ranching community, mm-hmm. and they said, "Well, we'll review it again." And so this time they came and said, "We'll approve your project, but you have to make a choice. You have three different things going on here. You have this thirty paddock rotation. You have changed the supplement program, and you've changed the calving season." And they said that those were three different treatments and we needed to pick one. We could either do the grazing and not change anything else. We could change the supplement and not change anything else. Or we could change the calving season and not change anything else. But of course, if you're going to change the calving season, you need a way of stockpiling grass to be and or eliminate hay. You need to be able to change the grazing to be able to stockpile Mm -hmm. grass. Mm -hmm. And you really can't do that if you're going to place the animal's highest needs when the grass is at its poorest. So it wasn't three treatments. It was one. Yeah. And they knew it and yeah. they just set it up so that we had to walk away from it. So rather than kick yeah. us out, we wound up walking away from it. Yeah. Um, but hmm. there were a couple of things like that going on. And the, here's the thing. I love the University of California. I really do. Mm-hmm. I think extension is awesome. Um, I feel like it's a family member being able to gripe about another family member. I feel like I'm part of I was part of that family. Yeah, And so I feel like I have standing to complain about it mm-hmm. when other people outside the university complain about it. Hey, you can't, you know, you can't <laughs> insult my sister. You can't insult a family member or we're going to have yeah. words. Yeah. Um, uh, because the university does some really, really good things. Yeah. My frustration is it could be doing even better things. Yeah. Um, and it's not the institution. It's the people in the institution. Um, I'm, I'm this trip to North Dakota. There's a couple people with extension who've invited me up. Uh, well, wow. You know, that's terrific for them. I'll bet you they're going to get some flack for it. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, they they put the producers first and not the politics of the organization first. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the same with Dallas. Dallas with it was extension in extension in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And I think he was I, I think he was much more popular than I was because uh, he's I tell people he's a smarter, better looking, friendlier version of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was better able to navigate the uh, the relationships in administration than than I was. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, <laughs> that's that's a rabbit trail with a big hairy rabbit at the end that we don't need. Yeah, to well, it's it, it's an interesting conversation, and I, people talk all about the problems of kind of reductionist science and stuff, and then there's the opponents that'll say, you know, that ex- anecdotal experiences aren't real science either, and I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tough. So how do we? Yeah, I don't know. We'll just we'll move on. Uh, but I appreciate I appreciate you going down that rabbit trail. It it interested me to hear why they had pushed back on it so hard, especially when it seems like so many of the principles were so logical. Although maybe at that time early on they they hadn't been fleshed out as much as they have now. But um, I guess we'll move on to the topic of today's conversation, and and that's kind of around again this idea of retirement. Um, you sent me before the call a nice kind of little outline that you that I think is worth sharing and we can kind of go through that. And I'm not sure if we have to make any assumptions before that, assuming, you know, like the ranch is a, is profitable or anything, but I guess maybe we just, uh, I'll turn it over to you to kind of share some of that framework that you shared and we'll, we'll just dive into it. Well, I'll tell you what, on that thing about profit, Mm -hmm. um, if you don't mind, let's digress one more time and just see if we're on the same page about what profit really is, because most people don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is a difference between economics and finance. Mm-hmm. And most people, if they ever think about it, don't know what that is. It boils down to this. Economics is the question of, should I do this thing? In other words, is it profitable? Yeah. Uh, if there's a corollary, the corollary is, how can I make it more profitable? So economics is all about profit. Well, if economics is, should I do it, about profit, then what's finance? Finance is the question of, can I do it? Mm-hmm. Where's the capital going to come from to get this thing going? Let's say something is, the projections are that it's going to be really profitable to do, but it takes $100,000 of startup money to get it going. Mm-hmm. Well, where the heck am I going to come up with $100,000? Mm-hmm. And let's say I come up with $100,000 and we get this thing rolling, but all the income happens at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. How do I pay my bills? So it's also, it's, the sourcing of capital, the allocation of capital, and how does the cash flow? That's what finance is. So if economics is a question of should I do this, finance is a question of can I do this? Mm-hmm. And then there's a third question when it comes to money, and that's taxes. <laughs> and most people put these things in the exact wrong order. Tax avoidance comes first, which is the opposite of what we want to do. We want to create huge tax problems for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we think those are good problems to have. So they put tax appointments first, they put finance second, and they put economics first or third. Um, Mm -hmm. But economics should come first Mm -hmm. and finance comes second. And then let's look at the tax consequences. One of the things we talk to people about a lot is is managing for what you want, not against what you don't want. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to tax avoidance, that's managing for what you don't want. I don't want to pay taxes. So they manage to avoid taxes. Uh, and they never create what they want. So what we do is start looking at what do you want? Now, let's figure out how to make that happen. And now let's deal with whatever the tax consequences of that are. 
So a lot of people still want to put finance first. But if something, let's say we start with $100,000 and we lose 80 of it. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do that? And I told that to a group, you know, let's start with 100000 and lose 80 of it. And one of the people in the audience said, yep, we're ranching now. <laughs> but we start with 100, we lose 80 of it. Do you want to do that? Well, of course not. Mm-hmm. So economics, should I do it, has to come before, can I do it? Yeah. Um, that's a long way of saying that economics comes before any of this stuff. Because yeah. if you want to pass the ranch on to the next generation and it's not profitable, uh, why are they going to want it? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, maybe they want it for the lifestyle, but if they want it for lifestyle, then they're going to, then they really be smarter to rent it out to somebody else and just live there. Yeah. Um, so the way, what profit is to us, the definition is, could you pay market rate rent for the land? Because we make a big deal. And this is actually an important thing when it comes to succession and, and estate planning to separate the operating business from the land investment. Uh, the operating business has to pay rent to the land investment. It's the only way to see is the land subsidizing the operating business or is the operating business subsidizing the land? Mm-hmm. So can you pay market rate rent to the land, whether you own it or not? Can you pay the full cost of labor? In other words, nobody in the family gets to work for free anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we call it, most people call it sweat equity. Sweat equity is mm-hmm. is a joke because if you're doing the sweating you tend to inflate the value of that sweat. And if your siblings are in town and see you doing the sweat, they think, oh yeah, but they're living on the home place. They're having a life of Riley uh, and they devalue that sweat. So what sweat equity really is, is deferred wages. And we need to quantify what those wages should be. And if they're not going to get paid today, what's the interest rate that's going to accrue on those wages? So uh, I don't use the term sweat equity. Sure. Um, But bottom line, if the place isn't profitable, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so profit, can I pay rent for the land? Can I pay the full cost of wage uh, of labor? Can I pay interest on all the assets used in production, including the livestock? Can I pay all the other production costs? And after doing all of that, would there be something left over? And given that definition, about 95% of ranches in this country are not profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a 10-year average for most ranches is they would not meet that definition. Mm-hmm. And that might be fine for you if you inherited the land and if your wife has an, a town job, you know, the land's appreciating in value so we can sell off a little bit and keep the rest of it going or borrow more against it. But sooner or later, if the place isn't profitable, uh, the end is in sight. The light at the end of the tunnel is not uh, is not the end of the tunnel. It's a freight train that'll take you out at some point. Yeah. Except it's a very slow moving tra- freight train in ranching. Hmm. Uh, the transitions in ranching because of the way people subsidize their businesses with off-farm income, inherited wealth, uh, accepting that they can work for free, and because the land's appreciating in value and they can take on more debt or sell off little pieces, the death of ranches in this industry tends to be a slow, agonizing death, not a not so, not a a sudden transition. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so. It, the bottom line, if it's profitable, the transition is much more likely to be successful than it, if it's not. And and that's kind of why I was wondering if we have to make an assumption to have this conversation around farm succession or about retirement, do we have to make an assumption that the business is truly profitable or can a business that is not truly profitable, that's living off free labor and 
you know, old equity, does it even have the potential to be transitioned and to retire? Do you have the ability to retire from it? To Yeah. Well, first of all, this is going to sound really picky. <laughs> uh, if it doesn't make a profit, it's not a business. Yeah. It's a hobby. Yeah. Uh, it's been said that profit is to br- business as breathing is to life. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, I, I hate to be morbid, but I can see your tombstone now. It said <laughs> he breathed really well. <laughs> you know what? You've got to breathe to live. You stop breathing and you die. Mm-hmm. But your life is about something much more than just breathing. And it's the same thing with business. If you don't make a profit, you die. Mm-hmm. You know, and so if it stays on all these other life support systems, it's not a business. It's 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 a hobby. And there's nothing wrong with having a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's just that ranching is a really expensive hobby. And, and people talk about the lifestyle, which I don't get. You know, I home on the range and the beautiful sunsets and doing work you love. That's all great. That That's that's fine. But what I see is people waking up early, not getting. I remember sitting on a hillside when I was with the university. My son had just been born. And this is like two or three weeks after he's been born. And I'm a rancher and I are having lunch on a hillside after putting in some kind of trial. And he, um, I was describing the birth because I got to go in and there was an emergency C-section and I was there witnessing this thing as they lift my son up. And um, I was in tears from that and he was in tears too. But he got in my face and he said, don't you ever do what I did? What did you do? He says, I worked so long and so hard to build this for my children. And now they want no part of it and they want no part of me. And it occurred to me that you don't make up for time or intimacy with help, with a gift that's, you know, uh, transferring assets at succession mm-hmm. or in, in your estate plan. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of us who do that, we work so long and so hard to build this thing for another generation that they want no part of it or mm-hmm. us. And we'd be so much better off if rather than building it for them, and this is going to sound really selfish, but we'd be so much better off for them if we built it for us. Mm-hmm. Something that gave us joy, something that worked for us. Mm-hmm. And that's going to make them want to be part of something that we're engaged and excited about and happy with. And that's really working. Yeah. And that will be a magnet for the next generation. But we don't look at it that way. I think it's almost a uh, it's like being at a high school dance and sitting on the sidelines and seeing a pretty girl. And, gee, I hope she'll ask me to dance. <laughs> you know, what? it ain't going to happen. Yeah, You got to get out there and either ask them or just start dancing yourself. Yeah. And if you're having fun, other people will want to be around that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's not the way most people treat it. Yeah. The, uh, that, but that leads to another thing. The uh, the way we look at succession and estate planning, they are two different things. In fact, this, I started getting more and more involved in this. I'd worked with families for a long time on these types of things. But after selling the company, Dallas asked me if I would develop a new course for ranch management consultants on succession. Mm-hmm. And I started working on that, but it became clear that it just, unless you were willing to tackle the estate planning piece, then it was pretty naive to just do a course on succession. Because too often people set up the estate plans in a way that sabotages the succession plan. Succession meaning the change of management in in the business, whereas estate planning means change of ownership of the assets. And too often we set up the asset ownership so it cannot support um, the management 
scenario that we've painted, if we've painted one at all. So what we've done, you mentioned the framework, and I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. you did. This is some, when I've gone to things on estate planning, they've told me as they've essentially told me three things. First of all, it's really, really hard. The second thing is it's really, really important. And the third thing they'll tell you is here's a way to avoid paying taxes. And again, avoiding taxes is not managing for what you want. It's a manage, managing for what you don't want. Well, when Dallas asked me to put this course together, I was looking for a framework. Uh, there's a great Chris Christopherson song, and I always forget the name of it. Um, I, it's not coming to mind. But there's a line in the song that says, looking back and longing for the freedom of my chains. The freedom of my chains. I love that line. Uh, sometimes when anything is possible, there's it, it's almost paralyzing. You don't know where to turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that structure, uh, and I don't think really of structure as chains, but some people feel limited when there's structure in place. I think structure is limiting, uh, is uh, liberating, mm. because I can go all in on this particular thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not having to worry about, am I going to miss something else later? Knowing that it's if it's included in the structure, I'll get to it. And then I can mm-hmm. go all in on trying to figure that out. Sure. So the structure I use for this breaks succession planning, and retirement is a huge part of that. But it breaks succession planning into three phases. Now to retirement, retirement to the great beyond, and beyond the great beyond. And I like to use the phrase, the great beyond, just because it's nicer to say than you're dead yeah. right yeah so now to retirement retirement to the great beyond and beyond the great beyond and then i break the issues that you're trying to deal with in those three time periods into three things there's the family there's management of the business and then there's ownership of the assets mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. family management and ownership uh and that's that's the framework if i can figure out the first question we ask everybody and usually we ask this to family members independent of one another is what do you want? Mm. What are the results you want from a succession and retirement plan? Not the strategies you want to use. What do you want to achieve by having this? And answers will be like, well, I want to keep the ranch in the family. I want the ranch to be successful. I want uh, family members to get along with one. I want great relationships with, with family members. Uh, Even if family members aren't able to live on the ranch, I want them to feel connected to the ranch. I don't want to be, and this is what you don't want, but, uh, and we can flip it to what you do want. I want to, I don't want to be dependent on my kids when I retire. Mm -hmm. Or uh, a better way to put that would be, I want to be financially independent of the ranch when I retire. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to use my experience and wisdom. Hopefully I've gained some wisdom. Uh, as a mentor to my kids. Uh, I'd like to be the senior advisor. I don't need to have vote. You know, we have to decide what degree of control somebody is going to require to be comfortable in retirement. Um, with Dallas and me, I told him I didn't need to have any control, but I'd really, really enjoy the role of being a senior, not, you know, senior advisor. So if he has questions or concerns, I'd love to be able to share my experience and, and, and weigh in on those things but the decisions are completely his. Mm-hmm. Um, so the list of things that I want from succession and estate planning, the outcomes that I want, and then my wife would do the same thing. My kids would do the same thing. 
And then let's meet and share those. And we'll make a master list of what everybody wants. And usually there's not a lot of conflict between those things. Usually the outcomes people are looking for are the same things. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we'll break those down into those three time periods and into those three topics. Some, well, this is a family issue and this is a management issue and this is an ownership issue. And then we'll start looking for strategies within that framework that will produce each of those outcomes. And again, I like to do that after we've shared all those outcomes with one master list. I like to have each person on their own come up with that. And that creates nine blocks, right? Sure. The family yeah. from now to retirement, the family retirement yeah. to the great beyond, the family beyond the great beyond. Same for management, same for ownership. So there's nine mm -hmm. blocks. So there's nine pieces of strategy. And I like to have people work through that on their own and then come back together and share their strategies and evaluate them. We have a process to objectively evaluate those relative to those outcomes and actually put a numerical score. Does this take us closer to this outcome or push us further away? And then after everybody shared that, then we have one more, come up with one more strategy where we take the best off everybody's list, the things that are that push us closer to these things. And instead of your strategy or my strategy or my spouse's strategy or my kid's strategy, we come with our strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the results from, from doing that have been amazing. Mm -hmm. I've been, uh, every time I lead a group into that, I just think, oh God, where is this going? Yeah. And so far, every time, and I've been doing this for a number of years now, so far, every time, uh, the results have been better than what anybody came to the table with. Mm -hmm. which, which has been really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it almost, uh, I don't know how in the weeds to get, because like you're saying, you're, you're starting with the context of the individual family and what matters to them. So how we can proceed having a conversation around this. Uh, I don't want to get into too much specifics that may not be relevant to anybody, but are, I guess, are there some common trends that you start to see when you talk about that? I imagine there's some, like you said, the financial independence, the, you know, the, families are all happy and things and, and you know, working together and able to work together and the ranch is able to be you know passed on into generations and so i guess are, are there some other of those assumptions and then how what are some of the practical applications or the things that people could take away from this to to move down that path or maybe that's getting too much into weeds into the weeds yeah um that course is is four days okay um, so you can so cram it into 40 there minutes there's right? a lot of <laughs> There is um, um, a, f a foundation mm -hmm. to be laid before you can really dig into those things. Sure. And a level of trust that needs to be established. You know, some families just aren't ready to do that mm -hmm. because there is there are resentments, and we and we talked about that earlier. Um, I've heard it said that when you hold on to resentment, it's like taking poison, mm -hmm. but expecting someone else to die. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of resentments in families towards a, a sibling that was always the favored son or daughter. Or um, I've seen adult brothers, partners in the business who will only talk to one another through the, one of their daughters. You know, if, if that's the situation, forget this stuff. Yeah, You've got some other things that need to be done first to repair relationships and if they can't be repaired then let's get out of the relationship completely uh, but let's not pretend this is a family ranch when the two partners won't talk to one another 
So uh, you got to meet people where they are with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully you can move where they are. But if you try to jump ahead of, you know, you, you spend four days working through this stuff when people won't be honest with one another or really share what, uh, how they feel with one another, then it's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't do any good to uh, putting icing on a couch or doesn't make it more appetizing. <laughs> yeah. So do you, I mean, I don't know if you've worked with these types of families with those, is that a lost cause or do you have a process of helping <laughs> work through those actual family issues? I mean, do you recommend counseling or how do people yeah, move even um, into where they can start having conversations? Yeah. So, and sometimes they need to have, the, uh, you know, it's funny. We don't learn how to talk to one another mm-hmm. uh, and we certainly don't learn how to listen to one another. Mm. Uh, I remember years and years ago, I think I was maybe a year or two into running ranch management consultants. And I was facilitating a family meeting and it was tense, but I thought it'd been okay. Mm-hmm. And that night we're all having dinner, at the dinner table and uh, they cleared the table and they're preparing dessert. And the head of the family is sitting at one end of the table and his brother-in-law is sitting at the other end of the table. And the brother-in-law knew how to push buttons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I look at him and he says something and I start to turn over to the, the head of the family yeah. And all of a sudden I see the family Bible flying in front of my eyes over the table and the brother-in-law duck as it hits the wall on the other side of the room. Yeah. And I'd never seen a Bible used that way. Yeah. Um, but the rest of that evening was spent in what you might call shuttle diplomacy. I think I, I, I put on my Henry Kissinger hat and was going back and forth. And, and they, they repaired a lot of things, but ultimately uh, they realized they couldn't be in business together. Mm. You know, if they were going to have any kind of family relationship. And to me, that's, you know, one guy that came through the school once told me uh, business is business and family is family and family is way too important to mix business and family. And that doesn't mean you can't have a family business, but when you're in business, you're not my son, you're my employee. Mm-hmm. And I'm not your father. I'm your boss. And, my wife isn't my wife. She's my business partner. And of course, it's naive to think that you can really think that way. You know, there's lots of leakage, but that's you You have. I, I think if you approach it that way, everyone will be a lot better off. I mean, I always ask the question, how do you hold family members in account, accountable in a business without having a food fight at the dinner table? And we hold this up like it's some magical thing, some special thing. Uh, to strive for this family business. And when it works, it is a special thing. But, you know, it's hard enough to have a healthy personal relationship with the people you love. It shouldn't be challenging, but it is. And it's hard to have a healthy business relationship with anybody. But now you try to layer that healthy personal relationship and layer on top of that a healthy business relationship. And that's really hard. I mean, just the idea... One thing I like to do is is find a couple in the school that seems to get along pretty well together <laughs> and have them sit facing one another and ask them what's a challenge you're you're facing in your business and they'll identify it and they'll start to discuss back and forth but what they're doing is they're set up to be adversaries with one another. Yeah. And it doesn't take long before they get really uncomfortable and things shut down. So all I do is say, so let me did I understand the issue correctly? And if I get, yeah, you did, I'll write it on a flip chart. 
-hmm. and I'll turn them both side by side so they're facing the flip chart. Mm -hmm. And now instead one of one person against the other person, it's both of them as a team against the issue. Yeah. And it's remarkable how the dynamics change and how more, much more productive that conversation is. Mm -hmm. um, my wife and I take, my sister-in-law lives in uh, Redmond, Oregon. And every once in a while, we'll, we'll head up that way. And I love those road trips, sitting side by side, looking out the windshield. You know, what's the windshield for other than keeping bugs off your face? It's for looking into the future. You know, we talk, one of the things I like to talk about at the school is how big is your windshield on your car? You know, it's huge. It's, you know, six feet wide, three feet tall. Um, how big is your rear view mirror? You know, it's two inches by six inches, maybe. Mm -hmm. What's the rear view mirror for? It's for looking in the past. What's the windshield for? It's for looking into the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that's about the proportions we need to apply to ourselves when we look at our businesses. You know, the future is out the windshield. We need to be looking out there, not dwelling on the past. Yeah. But um, sitting side by side with my wife, I, one of the reasons I look forward to those road trips is not just to go someplace, is to sit side by side and have have conversations about things. It, it's just interesting how we never learn to talk to one another or, yeah. or listen to one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's too bad because, or I mean, somebody will say that their goal is that they want to pass this on to their family because, and they talk about how important family is. And, and this, this is a family business that we get to work with our spouses and our siblings and our children. And yet it doesn't always get reflected in the actions, especially around the boardroom table or something like that. And that's, that's sad. Yeah. Well, and that's, a, that's actually a really good segue into this retirement stuff because one of the issues we have is we want to pass it on to the kids, but we don't want to pass it on until we die. <laughs> and what is it we want to pass on? You know, we want to pass on the asset. We mm -hmm. really don't want to pass on management responsibility mm -hmm. uh, because that's what we do. And I, I had a tremendous advantage running ranch management consultants because my office was a mile and a half from my home. And every morning I'd walk to work and every day I'd walk home. And when I was at work, I was at work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't do personal stuff there. I did work and I'd come home and I was home. Mm -hmm. And I have a home office. I'm talking to you right now from my home office sure. and the door is closed. If I turn the computer around, you'd see the door is closed and I'm at work right now. And when I'm not in this office, the door is closed and I'm home. Mm -hmm. I have separation between what I do and who I am. Now, when for most ranchers, where are they when they're at work? At home. They're still they're still at <laughs> yeah. home. Yeah. And when they're home, where are they? They're at work. They're still at work. And there's no separation between what they do and who they are. Mm -hmm. And what what when what you do becomes who you are, mm -hmm. who are you when you stop doing? You're nobody. You know, work gives us a lot of things. Work gives us hopefully income. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives us purpose. And it gives us a certain status. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, from others yeah uh, oh he's a hard worker or look what mm -hmm. he's done or look what he's built when you no longer have that where do those things come from i think as big as the money piece of this is that meaning and uh, and the image we present to others of i've, I've lost my identity now yeah. so how do we replace those things and that's a huge issue when it comes to retirement um one of the huge issues about retirement is a lot of people treat it like falling off a cliff. 
you know, I'm working today, I'm not working tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, that's usually a disaster. There needs to be some more stair-step approach or a more gradual approach. Yeah. But one of the things we also need to do is get the next generation involved in management decisions, not just labor, but in management decisions, which means we need to let go of some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't do it. Uh, Stan used to, Stan Parsons used to say, when you see the tidal wave coming, it's too late. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. We need from an age of 30, 35, at least 40, to give significant management responsibility to the kids that we expect to assume the role of division manager or chief operating officer of the business one day. Mm -hmm. It's not like we can just flip a switch and say, I'm done. Now it's your turn. Mm -hmm. We need a management training program and we don't need anything quite so formal as, as a management training program, but they need to get management experience. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, I actually think it's great if they get up, get that experience off the farm uh, for a while, but yeah, you can do it on the farm, but it means you either have to create a new division or new enterprises for them to run, or you're going to have to step back or step over and, and do something else for a while. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I think to a conversation I had with my grandfather uh, when he was in the nursing home and, and I grew up, he, he was the hardest working person I ever knew until he had uh, a health issue that he could no longer do it. And I asked him one time there, uh, you know, you look at me knowing how hard you've worked and things. I mean, I think I'm pretty hardworking guy for a lot of kids my age and stuff like that. But what do you, do you think? I'm lazy sometimes or something. He, he kind of looked at me and said, no, uh, you're doing it right. I work too hard and I have nothing else to show for it kind of. And, and that was a pretty humbling moment that really, you know, made me. Yeah, put in perspective. Yeah, he he did what I thought I always wanted to do, which was farm and work my whole life until the day I can't, you know. And and then that happened, and he, yeah, that was him. And and so yeah. it's a it's an interesting I think, perspective. I think in some ways our work ethic works against us. There's another thing we talk about at the ranching for profit schools: the difference between working in your business and working mm -hmm. on your business. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what working on their business means. They think it means office time. Mm. And certainly some of it's done in the office, but just because you're in an office doesn't mean you're working on it. I mean, paying mm. the bills is not working on yeah. it. But figuring out what enterprises we ought to be running and how those enterprises ought to be structured and how we're going to finance it. And what's our expansion plan? How are we going to deal with drought? What's the marketing plan? How do we bring the next kids in? These are all components of working on the business. Most ranchers are so busy working in it that they never get around to working on it. In fact, if they do work on it, they feel guilty for it because mm -hmm. it's physical labor. It's you know our our worth is measured in buckets of sweat and the thicknesses of our calluses. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a well, I spent 14 hours today working on you know preparing that pipeline or doing this or yeah. doing that, as opposed to well, I spent three hours in the morning working on my financials. There's, how can you how do you brag about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the absence of working on it, a lot of the work we do in it is a waste of time. There's um, a couple I remember from, they're from Montana. I don't remember what part of Montana. I have a little video of these guys. I use it at the school. But they were driving, uh, the fellow calls me up one day and says, tell me about this school. And so I did. And He's so busy driving, he's driving school bus to make mm -hmm. ends meet on this place. It's a large mm -hmm. outfit, it's like 500 cows, and he's driving oh. a school bus to yeah. make ends meet. 
And uh, well, when am I going to find the time to work on my business? I'm too busy. Mm -hmm. Okay. How much do you make driving that school bus? It was something like 18 or $20,000 a year. Yeah. And uh, well, how much time, how much more money could you make if you had those mornings to work on it? And all of a sudden he realized $18,000. I think it, the line he says, geez, I can make that in my sleep now. <laughs> but um, that, that's actually a, probably a bad example because it's pretty obvious what he can stop doing. Yeah. You know, people talk about, well, I can, I need to make time for this. Yeah. You can't make time. Mm -hmm. I mean, time is, there's only so much of it, you know, mm -hmm. so it's a matter of managing yourself relative to that time. And if you're too busy to work on it, the question now becomes, what are you going to stop doing? Mm -hmm. You're either going to have to hire somebody else to do it, you know, twenty dollars an hour versus two hundred dollars an hour. Which job is more important? Mm -hmm. You can either hire somebody to do the other thing, or just let it go. Yeah. There are some things that we do that don't need to be done. But the other thing is, how much time does this really take? And anybody who's been through our program will get sick of us saying it, but it's true. Two mornings a week to work on it. Mm -hmm. Two mornings a week. Yeah. Uh, and you'd be amazed at what at the changes that are possible. And do you think the hesitation largely comes not even so much from finding the time, but from an and it, like a mindset of there isn't I'm doing everything I can. There's nothing that I can do. Why would I go spend time in the office? There's not like I'm, I'm doing what I I, I got. I'm doing what all the experts what the the you know they tell me I got to do. So yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, I I think that goes just a little deeper. I think I don't think most people believe that ranching can even be profitable. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how many people will say ranching for profit. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, and if you don't, and, and the reason for that is, I, I bet you, you were raised sort of the same way I was, you know, if I needed money and I went to my mom and say, Hey mom, I need five bucks. She wouldn't just give me five bucks. I mean, would your folks have given just handed the money over if you said, no. hey, I need five or ten bucks? <laughs> no. What would they have told you to do? Well, I'd have to go work for it. That's right. And so the lesson you learn is I have to work to make money. Yeah. Now, if you need more money, what are you going to have to do? Work harder. Or do more work, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's the, par that's the paradigm we grew up with. I have to work to make money. Um, and so we work to make money. But it mm -hmm. turns out there are other ways to make money. Um, mm -hmm. Robert Kiyosaki says there are four. One is to be an employee yeah. where you work and somebody pays you to do it. Another is to be self-employed where you work and you pay yourself for that work. Another is to be a business owner where you pay someone else to do the physical labor. And the other one is to be an investor. Mm -hmm. Well, most ranchers are self-employed. And I think it's Michael Gerber that says when you're self-employed, your boss is a lunatic because nobody holds you accountable. You're so busy doing the things that you're good at and the things you enjoy doing that you're not doing the things that really determine if the business is going to be successful. Uh, the difference between being self-employed and being the business owner is the business owner can leave if they want for an extended period of time and things are going even better than when they left. But anyway, um, so I think part of it is the work ethic gets in the way. That's what we're raised to do. The cattle business means working cattle. Mm -hmm. We got to be outdoors. We got to be doing physical labor. But in the absence of the what be, sometimes that physical labor is spent on, I'll, I'll share with you what I call Pratt's paradigm. <laughs> I'm certain this is not original to me, but I've never heard someone else say it. Okay. 
Pratt's paradigm is this. Why would I do something if I could make more money not doing something? Yes. And the corollary is, why would I invest my money in something when I could make more money not investing my money in something? Mm -hmm. And the perfect example of the application of Pratt's paradigm is custom grazing versus owning cows. We see the gross margin from gross margin is a measure of the economic efficiency of an enterprise. We look at the gross margin uh, per head of running, say, custom cattle in some parts of the country versus owning cattle. And the gross margin might be 50 or $100 per head more on an animal unit basis for running somebody else's cattle. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, not only is the gross margin better, but I've got $1,200 or $1,500 of capital that I don't have tied up in that stinking cow that I mm -hmm. could do something else with. Yeah. So why would I own cows? And yet, unless you do the numbers on that and think about what is this ranch for and what do I want as an owner, what value do I want from this ranch? Um, until we've asked ourselves those questions and worked through the math on that, we might spend running cow, our own cows our entire life. And because of that, sacrifice three or four million dollars in the process over mm -hmm. over a lifetime of ranching. Yeah. Um, the other assumption is that every penny we make needs to go back in the ranch. You know, so let's say we do that custom grazing and I have a herd of four or five hundred cows. Um, if I have conservatively a thousand dollars a cow, 500 cows, it's five hundred thousand dollars. So I've got somewhere between five hundred and seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars if I liquidate the herd. Yeah. What would I do with that money? Well, most people would look at paying off debt or somehow plowing it back in the ranch. Mm -hmm. My first reaction would be, well, let's find a place off the farm. Yeah. Because if we're in drought and I have to destock, where's the cash? The bills don't stop just because I've destocked. Yeah. Where's the cash flow going to come from to pay those bills? Mm -hmm. So let's put it in something that produces income from off the farm. And that way also, if I've got a couple of kids and I want to leave them both something when I die, I don't have to split the ranch. One gets the off-farm assets, the other one gets the ranch. Oh, and then there's other ways of dealing with that too. But I think dividing land, saying, here, you get half and you get half, I think that's a crime against agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, the fragmentation of anybody who's who's been around a while knows that the fragmentation of properties and how difficult it is to find a lease of any scale. Um, I, th I think the fragmentation of, of land is maybe the biggest financial challenge we face in making a, a ranch profitable these days. Yeah. So anything we can avoid doing that, I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Anyway, but, but well, so this, uh, this money that goes off the farm, it can do something else too. And that's when yeah. I don't have to be dependent on the ranch in my retirement. Yeah. And that's kind of a, a an issue or a question that I wanted to ask is this idea of investing outside of the business, because I think it's so easy to think that every dollar should go back into the business. And maybe, and, and I guess I'm just kind of walking through this in my head. It's not a question so much as a kind of a conversation is if you can, if you have built a business that is extremely profitable and can afford to pay yourself a return on the equity, can afford to you know, if you needed to leverage or if you needed to someday buy out a sibling because you didn't invest off the ranch, um, is it wrong to reinvest everything back into the business to grow the business at that point, as opposed to investing outside? And especially if your business is not profitable, if, if it is, if it is receiving some sort of, sort of a subsidy through 
equity in the business or free or cheap labor or something like that. At that point, it seems like even more important than to invest outside of the business because you're not, you're not, it's not even investing then if you're putting it back into the business, it's just throwing money away really. And, and at that point, you're, if you accept that your business is a hobby, and I think this is why it's important, it hurts, you know, probably for someone to accept that their business is a hobby. But if you look at it as this is not a business, a business is profitable. This is a hobby. Am I willing to invest more money into a hobby? What What is doing more of the same? I mean, if you already have the lifestyle, you're already enjoying your hobby. What advantage does it have to do more of it? It's not a financial advantage um, because it's not a business. You're better off than investing elsewhere into another investment or business or something somewhere else. And so I apologize. That's not really a question. It's more so just uh, walking through kind of the, this thought in my head that has sparked. But there, there's something I'd really like to clarify because I think I've done some people a disservice in calling most ranches hobbies i think some people take that as an indictment on their character or that no you really should turn this into a business as a blanket recommendation for everyone mm-hmm. and i don't think that's true uh some people have their ranches as an escape from the rest of the world mm-hmm. And I've, I've had people come through the school that I think are almost guilted into beginning this transition into a business, and they're just not capable of doing it. And I, that's by, by far the minority, maybe 10% of folks, it's just not in their heart to do it. And, and they ought not do it. Bud Williams used to say in, when he was doing his marketing classes, uh, he said, know yourself. Know what you will do and know what you won't do. And don't try to pretend, you know, just realize what you're capable of doing and what your your mindset is <laughs> is will focus on and work within that framework. Well, if the ranch is a hobby to you, then great, fantastic, enjoy the hobby. And if you want to invest more in your hobby and you find financially you're capable of doing that, far out, you know, mm-hmm. do it. Um, but uh, if the ranch is, if the ranch is supposed to be a business, if you want to rely on that for your full-time gig and, uh, and it needs to work, then let's step up, step up to the plate and make that happen. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think getting back to what we were talking about, I think the biggest reason people don't, they're so focused working in it. They don't work on it is not the sense of, um, I don't think it's really about being too busy. I think that's an excuse. I don't think they know how, mm-hmm. you know, we grow up learning how to set a brace or vaccinate a calf or do the physical work of ranching. No one ever teaches us how to work on a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you do, what is a drought plan supposed to look like? Have you ever seen one? Most people have never seen one. And then the absence of that template, you know, what is the drought plan supposed to include? How am I supposed to build one? I have to reinvent the wheel and I have to, whether it's a drought plan, the marketing plan, the succession plan, uh, the expansion plan, uh, all these things. Holy mud. You know, I'm supposed to reinvent the wheel for everything, but without realizing that, gee, somebody else has already had to go through all this stuff. There must be a template somewhere. Mm -hmm. Somebody knows how to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is what we teach people to do, um, is to do this stuff. And we provide the templates for doing it. Yeah. Um, And well, we obviously can't get into every template and every different thing, but I guess a question then that I have 
and a big one that I wanted around this topic is the financial piece of retirement. And how does a, is, how does a, what are your tips or ideas for a person, either my age or my father's age or something that's looking at, I want to retire someday and be in the financial position to be able to pass this business on a ranch or hobby or whatever to the next generation. How do I get myself financially prepared for that time being? As with most things, the answer is really frustrating. It depends. Sure. <laughs> and one of the things it depends on is how old are you and mm -hmm. what have you done to this point? Mm -hmm. If I'm 50 or 60 years old and every penny has gone back into the ranch, mm -hmm. then probably my best strategy until I die is to rent the ranch to the kids. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that'll be enough retirement income. Maybe I have to lease them the animals or maybe I should be actually, I, I'd probably be better off selling the animals and taking that capital and creating some investments that also produce cash flow for me yeah. uh, so that the kids have a free hand. If, you know, if they want to buy the herd, then great. But if they don't, then I shouldn't lock them into the way I've been doing things because that might not be the right thing for them. Mm -hmm. um, but leasing the ranch for them, separating the operating business from the land business. I, I remember a rancher in British Columbia who came to his dad. He'd been really frustrated. He'd been wanting to make changes, he and his wife. And uh, dad wouldn't have any of it. You know, wanted to change the calving season and mm -hmm. all sorts of fairly substantial changes. And he said, dad, I'm going to have to leave. I'm, I'm out of here. Now, I want to leave and stay here. In the, other words, what I want to do is I don't want to be partners with you. I want to break the partnership. I want to rent the ranch from you mm -hmm. uh, so that we can have a personal relationship, but we cannot be business partners together. I can't work under your thumb. Mm -hmm. It's driving me crazy. And if that's not going to work, then I'm just going to have to leave physically. And I would hate to do that because I want my grandkids or your grandkids to stay connected to you and this this ranch but if we can't figure this out then that's what it's going to be mm -hmm. uh, and after stewing on it for a while dad came around and uh, wound up leasing the ranch and i've seen that happen many many times and in fact one fellow came to the school re was repeating the school and uh, was telling the story about how he came home and they had that conversation and it was hard for his dad but uh, after a after a while they got it done, he came back to the school a couple of years later, and he told him that his mom had just come to him and said that his dad told her, man, we should have done this years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I was talking to him on the phone not too long ago, and he said his dad had just said uh, that her, his mom told her his dad that I haven't been this happy and, or stress-free hmm. in, in all the years I can remember. Yeah, I, I think one of the things we don't appreciate is how much stress there is that we mm -hmm. carry with us in running a business. And it's not like there's this thumb weighing us down that every day we feel oppressed. But just the issue of having I've got to hold employees accountable. I've got to meet with the banker. I got to work. Mm -hmm. I got to figure out this. I've got, gee, is it going to rain or is it not going to rain? The cumulative stress from all that is in invisible. Yeah, but it's real. And I remember when I when I sold the company to Dallas, over the, we had some things happen in, in our family. My sister had a 
uh, severe, a major accident was in the ICU for like three months, wow. uh, the week after we sold the company. And so retirement didn't really feel like retirement. And then yeah. COVID happened and all these things. Yeah. But within, uh, within, I think, seven or eight months of selling the company, I lost 20 pounds. Hmm. And I wasn't trying to lose 20 pounds. Yeah. It was just, uh, I had order to my life. I didn't have the stress of holding employees accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, it was liberating. Retirement for me was liberating. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm still doing, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to North Dakota next week. <laughs> but the work assignments that I choose to take, I'm choosing to take. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm only working on the things that sound like they're going to be fun to do. Yeah. Uh, it would be when I was, when I owned and ran the company uh, doing this podcast with you. Uh, somebody would, if somebody asked me, well, what do I have coming up in the morning? I'm, I would say, oh, I have to do this podcast. <laughs> and now I wake up and think, oh, I get to do the podcast. And I made no, make no mistake about it. I loved what I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved running the company. I loved the impact it had on, on people. Um, yeah. I loved the people I work with. But there was this invisible stress that I think a lot of business owners don't recognize until they're able to step away from that. But in order to step away from that, you have to have something you're stepping to. And that thing you're stepping to has to be able to fund your life or your life has to be funded in some way. The role has to have some meaning. So you wake up with purpose. And it's and I think it's got to teach you some strokes, some recognition from outside. It's got to replace those things that work gave you. Otherwise, there's likely to be a problem. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And no, I like that. And and I think it probably is something that a lot of people don't think of because like you've said, their, their entire def- you know, identity has been defined by their work. But if you can find other things, if your financials are taken care of and you can find other things to enjoy and to find purpose in, that that's valuable. I, I was just- let me, let me add one thing about that. Uh, Stan Parsons used to say, you can't retire from ranching. And I think he was right. You can't retire from anything. You have to have something to retire to. And the way most people treat retirement is like falling off a cliff. It's retirement means what you're going to stop doing, not what you're going to start doing. Uh, and I think that's the way we really ought to be looking at retirement is, oh, boy, I can't wait to start doing this. And as soon as I wrap this up, I get to do this. So one of the questions I lo- love to ask people is, what is the what is an exciting retirement look like? To, take one more rabbit trail about this. There's a family in Nebraska. And uh, they had a great experience. They wrote, we had a great experience in the class, but we got home and hit a brick wall. Folks won't let us do anything. And I was facilitating a meeting with them and their folks. And it was clear that this was not going to work. I mean, there was just some really bad blood going on here. And I asked, this has been going on for going on for 13 years. And I said, how long ago do you know that dad wasn't going to change? Oh, we knew that. We knew that within a month. Okay, well, you can blame the first month on dad, but the last 12 years and 11 months are on you. And you should have seen their expression. Their jaw just hit the floor practically. And then I said, why are you still here? And they said, well, what else would we do? And I think that's one of the reasons that retirement is so hard for folks is because we we only focus on what we're currently doing. And then retirement is this big unknown. 
know, so for them, they're in this bad situation. What would we do? I, they didn't know what they would do. So comparing a bad situation to the unknown, well, there's nothing scarier than the unknown. I don't think people are really afraid of the dark. I think they're afraid of the unknown that's in the dark. Um, I think it's why people often stay in abusive relationships. It's because as bad as that is, the unknown is even scarier for them. So how do you make the unknown more known? Well, you begin to describe what would, and this is where working on the bit, not just working on our business, but working on ourselves, maybe, what would an engaging, fulfilling retirement look like? What would something even better than what I'm currently doing, what might that look like? And describe that and then retire to that. Anyway, and I think there's one of the things is it's not like we're severing ties with the ranch if we don't want to. If the if we think being the senior advisor would be a fulfilling role and a useful role, and if the kids are good with that, I think there's a lot of um, satisfaction to be had in that. You know, in uh, Native American cultures, they'd call it the tribal elder, right? The elders play an important role. But I like to point out to people, just because you're older doesn't mean you're an elder. You know, there is a specific role that that play an important role. But just being a cotchety old fart sitting on the couch <laughs> complaining about everything, that's not the role of an elder. Yeah. Um, and in the absence of a plan, I think too often that's what we become. That's really good. Um, you talked a little bit about that younger generation there and the issue that they didn't kind of have the future planned out, I guess. So I, I, I just glanced at my app here to see kind of what the makeup of my listeners are and about 60% are 34 and under. And so I think, and in, 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 I'd, I'd be interested to hear your perspective for those people, the the younger generation, and this has been a really great talk so far on, on that, that retiring generation, making sure they're retiring to something. It all kind of partly relies, like you mentioned, I mean, you have to have the finances. So maybe it's retiring to another job that's an option or something, but how do the younger generation plan to be financially prepared to retire at that point, whenever that is and whatever that looks like? That's uh, that's pretty easy. Okay. Just start taking a, uh, I, yeah, I shouldn't use the word just, I hate <laughs> the word just, oh, just do this. Yeah. Um, not, nothing is easy, especially if you haven't done it before, mm. but it is simple. Uh, just because something simple doesn't mean it's easy. People need the discipline to take a portion of what they earn and not just plow it into living expenses, not plow it into the ranch, but plow it somewhere off the farm. Kathy and I asked ourselves, how much are we going to need to live on in retirement? And we used an inflationary factor saying, well, you know, a dollar's, this is probably 20 years ago we asked this question. A dollar's not going to be worth 20 years from now what a dollar's worth today. So let's take yeah. it and figure out that this is the average rate of inflation and this is what we would need. We could So we could live on this much money. That would be comfortable. Uh, we didn't count on, and this is not a political statement, but we did. We wanted to be independent. Uh, Social Security, there was talk about the time about doing all sorts of things to it. Let's not count on that ever happening. Let's just be financially secure. I, we don't want to ever be dependent on our kids for money. What's it going to take for us to be independent? So we said, well, this would be a good monthly income. Any bonehead over a 10-year period ought to be able to earn 5% in the stock market. So 5% of whatever that number is means we have to have a personal endowment of this. Well, you all saw what happened in 2008, 2009 to the stock market. 
So, well, you know what? We better modify that because if the stock market does take a big dip, uh, so let's increase that number by 50%. So we came up with a target. When we hit that target, we can retire and not be dependent on anybody for any, any well, not for anything, but financially we'll be completely independent. And um, the earliest, earlier you start with that, the easier it is to achieve. Uh, I didn't get serious about starting with that until I was in my mid-40s. If I'd started five years earlier, knowing what I know now about retirement, if I could have done it five years earlier, I would have done it five years earlier. Yeah. Um, I, at the time, I was, I was skeptical. My wife was ready to step back. Dallas was ready to step up. And we had built this platform for RMC. I thought we were like a rocket ship just getting ready to launch. And I thought, man, I want another year or two to, to ride this rocket. But Kathy was ready and Dallas was ready. And so I was kind of dragging my feet a little bit. It's an all right. I guess we got to do it. And for a number of reasons, it turned out to be awesome, awesome timing for uh, for us. Uh, challenging times for Dallas because it just entered right into the COVID period. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, seriously, if I had known how much fun I was going to have in retirement, I would have found a, found a way to do it five or 10 years earlier. And But one of the keys to that would have been to start making those investments when I was 30 or 35, not when I was 40 or 45. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I guess I hear a lot of times in farms and ranches and stuff that the younger generation and they're not being compensated fairly because they're getting this you know, promised someday this will all be yours, sweat equity and stuff. And so, you know, they get yeah. you know, housing covered, some of your basic needs, food and whatever covered and a small stipend. I mean, is that just a conversation they need to have to demand a fair you know, a demand fair compensation at time at, at the time of work or, or how do you get around that so that they can set aside money? I'd suggest not using the word demand. Sure. <laughs> That's um, a good start. I would uh this isn't somebody else's problem. First of all, accept that this isn't somebody else's problem. If I'm the generation that wants to get paid, this is my problem. Mm-hmm. The senior generation, they're fine the way things are, uh, but I've got a problem. So the way I would tend to approach the conversation is, mom, dad, I have a problem. I need your help. And then rather than coming from me, you know, on one hand, I love talking about the Ranching for Profit School uh, because I believe in what we do and there's a lot of good resources there. On the other hand, some people take it as a sales pitch. Mm-hmm. But when you spend uh, the better part of 30 years, actually more than 30 years, building something, because I was helping build it before I before I bought it, you know, I really believe in what we do. But on the YouTube channel, there is a video about sweat equity uh, and talking about deferred wages. Mom, Dad, I've got a problem. I'm, I've been relying on sweat equity. We've talked about sweat equity. I think your assumption is that someday this will all be mine. Yet I'm not sure what all is, and I don't know that there's a written estate plan, and I don't know what your intention is towards my sister and my other and my brother. I imagine you'd want to be fair to them, and I'd want to be fair to them. I saw this video, and it got me thinking about our situation. I'm wondering if you would please watch this three-minute video or four-minute video so that we could have a conversation and see if this applies to us. 
So rather than say, I demand <laughs> that you pay me, I think I'd approach the discussion a little bit differently. And I might use a third party, somebody that might be perceived as an authority to introduce the issue and then have the conversation. How do you think this applies to us? Mm-hmm. And I would try to be, arrange it. So I was sitting next to my parents, not facing my parents mm-hmm. as we're having this conversation. And personally, I don't see how you can run a business without a flip chart. To me, that's the ultimate in technology, a flip chart and an easel and right sweat equity. Uh, Or should we be relying on sweat equity and sit together side by side, facing that and say, so let's talk about this. And as issues come up, stand up, write down whatever point's been made on the flip chart, confirm mom, dad, did I get that right? No. Well, tell me again so that they know they've been heard. Mm-hmm. You've, you've probably been, been in conversations where the same thing keeps coming up over and over and over again. And one of the reasons is for that is that people don't feel like they're being listened to, that you understand them. And if you can show you under, you care enough to listen to understand and write, write it down to prove you understand, and it's up there. So if dad says the same thing a second time, right, we, we got that, right? Oh, yeah. It's unlikely to come up a third time because because he knows he's been heard. Um, now, here we get back to the point of the thing about we don't know how to talk to one another. But, um, yeah, I'm a huge uh, advocate for getting rid of the term sweat equity and the idea that someday this will all be yours. Well, I want to know someday, which day, which day will this all be mine? And what does all mean? Does all mean that I'm going to get the operating business? Does all mean I get the whole ranch? Does all mean I'm going to get my third of the ranch? Does that mean it's going to be a divided interest? So that if my brother wants to sell out, that he sells out that third, will it be an undivided interest? And I hear different opinions about this from other people that work in estate planning. And some people are just absolutely against uh, undivided interests in family businesses um, or in the land. I'm actually a huge advocate of that, provided there is a, some kind of buyout agreement. So if you and I are brothers and uh, and I want out, okay, so what's the mechanism you're going to use to buy me out? And how are my shares going to be valued? Mm-hmm. Because I can't take my share. Let's say our ranch is worth $10 million. Yeah. What does that make my half worth? $5 million. Really? Can I go out on the open market and sell 50% interest in a family ranch at market value? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think my shares are probably worth half of the market, maybe half of market value. Mm-hmm. And let's recognize, first of all, my parents didn't owe me an inheritance. I mean, maybe there's this understanding or an expectation I've had that they're that I'm going to get an inheritance. Well, that's, you know... We need to be trans. Parents need to be tra- transparent with their kids about what their intentions are, and kids need to be transparent with their parents about what their intentions are. Um, but nobody owes anybody an inheritance. Inheritance is a gift, and nobody owes anybody a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. It's a transfer. It's, it's some other kind of transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if inheritance is a gift, nobody is owed anything. So. The actual fact is if I if if I'm if I'm the parent now and I want to keep the ranch intact, well, that's my right. That's what I want to set things up in a way that keeps the ranch intact. 
One way to do that is to give my kids, if I think they will benefit from it, an undivided interest with the clause that if somebody wants to get bought out, here is the way the shares are going to be valued and here's the mechanism for funding the buyout. Mm. And sorry, son, if you don't like it, well, that's kind of unre- that's kind of unreasonable because you weren't owed an inheritance anyway. It was my money, not your money. As a child, I owed you love. I owed you the support uh, to become the person you're capable of becoming. Uh, I owed you shelter and all of those things. But once you're an adult, I want to help you in any way I can. But this is my money. It's not yours. I can do whatever I damn well please with it. And I I probably have an obsessive. I'm probably obsessive about that. I I remember from probably an inappropriately early age. My mom talking to me, my dad left when I was very young, and she blames that on her mother having Alzheimer's, and her, and my mom became the primary caregiver for her mother, and she blames that for driving my dad out of the house, and she swore to my sister and myself that she would never do that, and that she made it clear that whatever money she was able to earn was her money and was going to go to take care of her. And she pretty much guaranteed my sister and myself that we would not get any inheritance at all. You know, just get over it. I love you. Her, She didn't put it this way, but the message that was conveyed was, I love you too much to give you an inheritance. I love you so much that I'm going to make sure I'm never a financial burden on you, is what she was saying. And uh, she was wrong about that. When she died, and she did get Alzheimer's, and uh, it was about... 13 years ago, she passed away and I got a stock portfolio worth about $200,000 and a rental property, uh, a rental house. My sister got her farm paid off. If if you look at the financial balance sheet, my sister got more than I did, mm-hmm. but my sister also provided, was there more, you mm-hmm. know, my travel schedule being what it was. Uh, in fact, we built a house on my sister's farm for my mom to live in for some of those last years. It was appropriate that my sister got more. In fact, in when my mom died, my I'm absolutely sincere in this. My initial reaction was, Robin, are you okay? Um, when we found out what was in the estate and all that, well, we knew what was in the estate, but are you okay with this? Does this seem fair to you? And I think that was her, it felt like that was her primary concern. Was I okay with the way things were? But so that's set in my mind's eye that this is my mom's money. It's not my money. I, I'm not owed an inheritance. And I think that's the way I would hope that kids would look at it that way, as opposed to I deserve whatever. Yeah. What you do deserve is honesty and openness to know what the folks' intentions are. Yeah. Because if I'm 35 and my folks might not pass on until I'm 50 and I'm there investing the next 15 years of my life, and then it becomes a situation where the farm just isn't viable because of the way they left it to other people. Well, now how employable am I at 50? What other career options do I have at 50? That's, that is unfair to me. And so while I'm not owed an inheritance, I am owed a clear explanation of my folks' intentions. Because if their intention is to put this in a to give this farm or ranch in an estate that makes it impossible for me to manage it. I need to know that now. And the folks need to be aware of the consequences of that, of their decision to leave the farm that way, that this will not stay intact and I will not stay here. 
And that's not a threat. That's just the reality. Yeah. So yeah, there can't be too much. Uh, you know, yeah, I see so many times folks say, oh, don't worry about it. We've got it taken care of. Well, I do worry about it. And I don't mean to uh, be diabolical about this or anything, but if you have a hard time with that conversation, one way to do it is if you have kids, mom, dad, I'm concerned. I think you'd like me to be part of this farm. And I think you'd like to grant your grandkids to be part of this farm, but without some certainty, I can't, we're going to have to make, we're going to have to make some changes here. Uh, I've got, I've got responsibilities to my family to make sure that we're financially secure. And if I can't find out what's in the estate plan, then we're going to have to do some things. And you don't do that as a threat. You just do that as a responsible parent. I agree with pretty much everything you said there. That was really good. Um, oh yeah. I think we're already pushing up on an hour and a half here. And so <laughs> I, uh, I could keep talking for a long time and it may just have to be more in another conversation, but is there anything else on this conversation of, it's kind of evolved, but secession retirement that is worth sharing before we wrap up today. You know, I want to clarify one thing that I said earlier about it being family businesses being challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may have come off that I don't believe in family businesses, that it's not mm-hmm. something to strive for. There's nothing better than a family business when it works. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to make it work, uh, especially when nobody's had any training in how you build and run a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, working just because you know how to raise livestock doesn't mean you know how to build and run a business that raises livestock. Mm-hmm. And I think there's one other key. My daughter is an actress. She, you've probably seen her in commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, she loves Shakespeare. And I was talking to her, how do you remember all these lines? You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of dialogue in some of these roles she plays and says, well, you know, when you're acting, when you, when you act like this character, how do you remember this dialogue? And she says, well, I don't act like the character. I become the character. Mm-hmm. And if I become the character and the script is well-written, it's the thing this character would naturally say from, from their point of view. So it becomes, she didn't say that she doesn't have to memorize the line. She does, but it becomes so much easier when she becomes this character. She lives as this character during the play. And I, you've probably heard it too. People say, I really ought to run this as though it were a business. <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. ought to act mm-hmm. as though it were a business, as though it were a business. And when we say that, we're acknowledging that it's not really a business. And what my daughter was pointing out is it's not sustainable to pretend. It's not sustainable to act. You have to become. If it is a business, you'll behave appropriately. If it's not, you'll behave appropriately, right? You'll you'll pretend. Um, but if it is a business, then it's time we step up to the plate and, and learn how to do this. And the most challenging part of running a business is not working out the economics or finance. It's not figuring out the production strategies that are going to be best for the land and that are going to produce the most cash flow and profit. The hardest part of running a business is getting people on the same page and working together. You know, I, I have not encountered a situation where we have not figured out a, a financial solution to a problem or how to figure out how to get a business more profitable. What I have run into is getting people in the business to agree with one another yeah. on being able to embrace that strategy. Businesses do not fail because of money. They don't fail because nobody ever went broke because they had a weed. 
No one ever went broke because they had the wrong breed of cattle. People go broke because they can't agree. That's why businesses fail. And it's the the one thing that we're most reluctant to 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 focus and, and learn about and deal with. Uh, we make excuses by calling it touchy-feely mumbo-jumbo. Uh, but that's the stuff that determines the success or failure of a business more than any other thing by far. It's the hardest part to get right, and it's the most fun part when you do get it right. It's the most rewarding piece. And I just, uh, those words of that fella on the hillside about telling telling me his kids wanted no part of the ranch and no part of me, that was like hearing a nightmare while, or having a nightmare while you're awake. You know, I must not let this happen to me. I must not wind up when I'm 70 or 80 years old. Um, I don't want to have to say that. So let's, let me create a different reality. And the exciting part is there is a different reality that you can create, but it's not going to just happen. You actually have to work to make it happen. No, well, that's a great way to wrap this conversation up. And I really appreciate it. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to plug some of your books. I mentioned them in the intro, anything else that you, anything you want to throw out there and, and how people can find you or reach out if they want to learn more, if that's something you're interested in. Um, I'm happy if people want to email me. Uh, it's I've been too lazy to change my email address. <laughs> I'm no longer officially affiliated with ranch management consultants. Uh, Dallas, when he uh, can't do a workshop, will ask me if I want to do it. And uh and things like the succession planning piece, he'll contract mm-hmm. with me to do things like that. But I'm no longer an employee of the company, but I've been too lazy to change the email address. So I'm Pratt, P-R-A-T-T, at ranchmanagement.com. And if folks have questions, I'd be happy to talk to them. It might take a while because of my travel schedule, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll, I will get back to folks. And um, I do some coaching, but I don't do coaching with people who haven't been through the stool. Because there's just too much stuff. Uh, the school is like an MBA in a week. It's a very intense week. And it just takes too long to get people up to speed on things. But if people have specific questions about how the things we've talked about today relate to their situation, uh, I'd be happy to happy to talk to them. Awesome. And yeah. uh, if uh, they know, if, they, if they're interested in a workshop on whether it's the economics, uh, the profitability piece, uh, the grazing piece and getting in sync with nature or whether it's the people piece and getting everybody on the same page. I, lo- I love doing that. You know, the, the beach boys may be 80 years old, but they can <laughs> still roll out of bed and do surfer girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can still roll out of bed and do the three secrets for increasing profit. So those things are, are fun for me. So if somebody wants to uh, look into that, I'd be happy to talk, talk to them about uh what other folks have done to arrange workshops and things like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Cool. No, my pleasure. Thank you. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.